Greetings, traveller, and welcome to another episode of Soundwave, the Shoreline of Infinity podcast, bringing you some of the finest science and speculative fiction stories, discussion, music, and poetry this side of the Tannhauser Gate. First up, a genuine apology. Genuine, because most of my apologies to people are sarcastic and without value. As you may have noticed, or not, probably, I I can't imagine, were of some huge importance to you that you hang your life around at the moment anyway, this podcast is coming to you later than usual, and it is all my fault. As you may know from previous episodes of the podcasts, if you haven't listened to previous episodes of the podcasts, hello! By trade, I'm a voice actor, producer, and sound designer as a day job, and a very exciting project came up, which naturally, needing to put food on the table, and then food into my hand, and then food into my mouth, and then food down the toilet, I was obliged to take. So exciting, in fact, that I have had to sign two different NDAs, and cannot mention anything more about it for now, which is really frustrating and annoying for me to bring it up, but I thought you were owed a reason. Uh, I suppose I could talk about it when it's released or launched, uh, but I think uh, that's so far down the road that you'll have forgotten all about it anyway, and I'll have forgotten to tell you. What matters, though, is that we're all here listening now, and I'll do my damnedest to make it up to you by doubling down on the releases of the podcast soon, so you get a tasty double shot of sci-fi in your regular podcast latte. Would it be uh, indecorous now after giving you an excuse to mention our Patreon? Uh, I'm bringing it up now, uh, as I'll explain. Search for Shoreline of Infinity on Patreon, or you can go directly to patreon.com forward slash Shoreline of Infinity, and you'll find our profile. Look for rewards that begin with the word Soundwave. And whatever level you select will go towards funding this very podcast. You'll be rewarded with extended interviews and or being able to listen to podcasts one week early. Not only that, but you'll be able to allow me to say, Sorry, Animation Studio, I have to prioritise getting Soundwave made and out to the loyal listening public. And not the other way around, which I had to do, which caused this very delay which I'd much rather happen, and hopefully you would rather happen as well. On this episode of Soundwave, we've got Debbie Cannon narrating David L. Clements's story, Something Fishy, and Ben Blow reading the poem L5 by Peter Roberts. I'll also be having another cosy chat in our Sonic Space segment, this time with the knowledgeable, talented, and quite fun Laura Lamb, award-winning author of the Micah Gray series, or Mika Gray, I've forgotten, She pronounces it one way in the interview, I pronounce it the other. Anyway, however it's pronounced, she wrote them. And the Pacifica books, and more. We're also going to be hearing the dream-pop synthy sci-fi goodness of L-Space music. But first, it's time to settle in with a nice, big, involving sci-fi short story. A big short story, I know, but it's about, like, nine minutes long. Written by Dan Grace and performed by the ever-wonderful Danielle Farrow. If you've got a container of your favourite sipping beverage available, now would be an excellent time to obtain it to accompany the following audio tale. An 
Infinite Number of Me by Dan Grace Read by Danielle Farrow According to Grandma, my mother first died when I was twelve. I'll admit I didn't notice at the time, but with hindsight I can spot the changes. She stopped taking sugar in her tea. I had presumed she was on a diet, or that her chronically sensitive teeth had finally worn her down. She dressed a little differently too. More colour, wilder, a little more free. I was outwardly mortified, but secretly pleased. I'd always thought her choice of clothes a little drab. And she was certainly around more, picking me up from school most days, despite my protests. Things have slowed down at work, were her words. We weren't close. Up until that point I had been more or less raised by my grandma. I didn't resent it particularly. Mother was a clinical, sharp woman as befitted her profession. Many of my friends had much more interesting and convoluted family situations than me. Dad had never been more than an abstraction, or an object of confusion, something other people had that I understood in principle, but couldn't see the precise purpose of. Mother had been immensely practical when it came to having a child. The facts of my conception were laid out before me as soon as I was deemed old enough to understand their meaning. Sperm donation from a series of suitably excellent candidates, egg screening at the most advanced and therefore expensive clinic. I chose you, darling. From all the available options, I picked you. Doesn't that make you feel special? It did. Although, in a childish way, I sometimes wondered what happened to those she didn't choose. Despite these changes, she still lived for her work. She was a genius, or close to it, according to Grandma. According to many people. She had sailed through school and university. A female physicist is still a rare thing in all places, it would seem, and she made capital from that fact. I remember one particular tearful episode. I was eight, or maybe nine. Mother was late home again. She'd promised to be back in time for dinner, and I, unwilling or unable to understand the importance of her work, had unleashed my full fury at poor Grandma. Undaunted, she reared up at me, finding those extra inches the elderly seem to lose as they go about day-to-day -day tasks, finger-pointing, wattle of skin below her chin quivering with anger. You listen here, young miss, you understand this. Your mother cares the world about you, she would do anything for you. Do you understand? What she's doing, her work, she does it for you. So we'll have no more of this. Am I clear? She was very clear. My young mind couldn't fully understand that there were things greater than my need for a mother at the dinner table, but I knew I was wrong. I've tried to read the papers she published, but they make no sense to me. They don't get to the heart of her work anyway. All that stuff is under lock and key somewhere. Art is my thing, my gift. I paint, people buy it, praise it. It makes me happy. That's enough, isn't it? My work is very public, maybe too public, I feel sometimes, the polar opposite of my mother's. She wasn't a shy person by nature, but she would never talk of work, of where she worked, of who she worked with. I understood that it was important. That was enough, wasn't it? The defect remained, though, a microscopic spanner in the works, and it took her from me again when I was only fifteen. I saw it that time, although I didn't know what it was that I saw. 
The changes were more noticeable, the differences greater. Coffee, not tea, alcohol in the house for the first time, clothes all too similar to what I was wearing, and a renewed need for contact for my company that only infuriated my teenage self. Why are you behaving like this, mother? Behaving like what, darling? Just, you know, following me around, texting me constantly. I mean, just leave me alone. But I love you, darling. I just feel so lucky to have you. That isn't so bad, is it? Ugh, mother. What, darling? And so it went. I still saw a lot of Grandma. She quizzed me endlessly about my mother, her behaviour, her habits, any changes in mood. Why are you asking me these things, Gran? What do you mean? I mean, why are you asking me about Mother? You've noticed she's changed too, haven't you? I don't know what you mean, darling. Gran, I think maybe it's the pressure at work, that's all. She smiled. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about at all. And I didn't worry, really. I was a teenager. Teenagers don't worry about their parents for the most part. They have enough of their own problems, real or imagined, to deal with. Mother died for the third and final time on the day of my 18th birthday, the day I became an adult. Just like that. She left for work and never came back. A car accident, utterly random. I was numb. I was hysterical. I was inconsolable. I realised that I hardly knew her, that I was just on the cusp of being able to get to know her. Yet I carried on. I went to university. I went a little crazy. I moved to London, inevitably. I made a name for myself. I had a succession of nice, but ultimately pointless men. I missed my mother. It's like this. Grandma bent forward in her wheelchair and scooped up a handful of gravel from the path. I'd asked her about mother, about her work. It was more out of lack of anything else to say than any hope I might hear something new. We'd spoken of it a thousand times before. Grandma enjoyed talking of her genius daughter. She held out her frail, translucent hand to me, filled with pebbles and bits of twigs, clods of dirt. It shook gently as she spoke. Each of these stones is a person, the same person give or take a few minor details. She hefted the handful high into the air, and we watched them splash down into the pond. The ripples that spread from each are their lives. Those points where they touch, they interfere with one another, you can feel. That inexplicable feeling of serenity that strikes you when you least expect it, at the oddest moments. Where our lives touch. An infinite number of me, an infinite number of you. All just ripples in the pond's surface. That's how your mother explained it to me. I mean your real mother. Gran? Oh, I'm sure there was more to it than that. When they recruited her, she said she couldn't talk about it anymore, not even to her own mother. A small smile. But she did, sometimes. If they touch, we can see into them, she said to me. If they touch, we can travel between them. Gran, I don't understand what you're saying. Your mother, darling. She drove a hard bargain. They needed her and she knew it. She was brilliant. There was nothing they could do about her condition, about her heart, but she got insurance. She made them promise. Promise what, Gran? That if she died, 
they'd bring another her through. I watch the light through the leaves on the old oak. My hand traces the creases in the bark, fingertips brushing lichen and moss. The sun is good on my skin. It soaks through my pores, down through muscle and bone, into the marrow. I feel lifted, inexplicably alive, and I know in this moment that my sister, one of many sisters, is near. I wonder if she knows her mother, our mother, or if, like mine, she too disappeared one day, an empty space left behind, a hollowness that always had been there, muted, but now pushed to the fore. And as the feeling passes, as it always does, I long to reach across the radius of the ripple, to see her, for her to take me in her arms, and for her to tell me that everything is going to be okay. Narrated by the soothing sounds of Danielle Farrow and written by Dan Grace, that was an infinite number of me. I do love those little journeys into a sci-fi world. It doesn't necessarily have to have a clear three-act structure or what have you. It can just be a, a snapshot, a taste of a fantastical world yet to come. That's the beauty of short stories and flash fiction. It's like cake, but for sci-fi. Fancy some cake? Of course you fancy some cake. Cake is delicious. It tastes great. Everyone loves cake. You always want a bit of cake. Short fiction, like flash fiction and short stories, can make sci-fi like cake. It's a nice slice of something you love that doesn't have to expand into something wider or grander, uh, something that fills you right up till bursting. It's just something you enjoy in the moment, savour its taste, have a cup of coffee with it, and when it's done, feel good from the lingering flavours before feeling guilty about having to do more exercise. Time for some poetry now, and we're going to go straight after that into our Sonic Space interview, this time with author Laura Lamb. L5 by Peter Roberts, narrated by Ben Lowe. 2. It's life in a shopping mall all the time. Everything expensive, harsh light, harsher air. Like an airport terminal, alien and alienating. And behind smooth surfaces, strange, subtle machines. At the centre, heart and meaning keep the functioning smooth. And people seem superfluous. 3. And yet, looking out at stars, earth and moon, the stars too seem small in the great all in all. We seem to fit in our personal nothingness, seamlessly shades into global non-being. Our vacuity fills the universe vacuum, comfortably hollow. We feel nothing, so we feel we belong. 
after all. Hello, you're listening to the Sonic Space here with me, RJ Bailey. I'm talking to Laura Lamb, originally from California, now lives here in sunny Scotland. She's a speculative fiction author who first became known for her Mika Gray series about a character who runs away to join the circus as an aerialist. These novels are Pantomime, Shadowplay and Masquerade. Pantomime is also a bisexual book award winner, and it, as well as the following books, have been widely praised. The Vestigial Tales series of novellas and shorts are also set in the same world. She's also the author of the BBC Radio 2 book club section False Hearts and the companion novel Shattered Minds. The short fiction has appeared in anthologies such as Nasty Women, Solaris Rising 3, and Cranky Ladies of History, to name but a few. She's also a part-time lecturer for the Master's Creative Writing course at Edinburgh Napier University. And through researching this intro, I also discovered that gonads is a real scientific term. <laughs> Laura, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me around today. Thank you for coming around. Thank you for tolerating my dog. This yes. is the fifth attempt at doing this introduction. <laughs> so thank you very much for bearing with us there. No problem. The dog is very cute. <laughs> she is. She's good. So... You might notice there, I deliberately didn't say a, uh, that uh, Pantomime, the Mika Gray series' first book, is about an intersex character. Mm-hmm. Now, my question to you, I deliberately avoided that uh-huh. because I don't know whether it's more uh, admirable to avoid topics, to avoid saying that because I, I am because that that is or should be considered the norm and doesn't need mentioning Mm. or should i have mentioned it i'd say because it's still relatively unusual and uncommon to have a variety of uh, gender and sexuality presentations in literature either in young adult or speculative stuff as Mm -hmm. far as i can tell i was the first young adult book to have an intersex protagonist and that first came out in 2013 so the fact that that was the first that recently is is not great um there have been more now so that's nice to see that it's it's uh going up so i think um that it should be mentioned because interestingly um you're not the first person who's been unsure whether or not it should be mentioned my first publisher actually Mm -hmm. uh very deliberately didn't mention that micah was intersex on the back cover copy because they wanted the reader to uh be a bit surprised because you kind of figure it out maybe in chapter four, chapter five, that um, Jean and Micah are not different people. They're the same person. Uh, But I never wrote it intending that to be a twist. Mm -hmm. And so it was a bit of an odd scenario because I understood what the first publisher was trying to do and there was no malice or anything, but it did mean that my book ended up being straight washed. It meant that people who really wanted to find the book couldn't find it because they had no way to search for it or people who didn't want to read about that at all uh, and thought it was a star-crossed lovers thing were a bit (laughs) confused. Um, So when it got picked up by a new publisher, I was very clear that I wanted it to be obvious that Micah was intersex Mm -hmm. um, so that people could find find the book. What's straight washed? Straight washed is basically what you'd you'd think it would be where it... uh, a very queer book is made to seem straight. Okay. I remember when you, you, you definitely could not call people queer. 
That was an no, insult. No, no, it's been reclaimed fully now, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still like some people in an older generation who obviously had it thrown at them as a slur. Yeah, and aren't as keen on it. But the the younger crowd, it's a it's a useful umbrella term because of all the various acronyms. Sure. Actually, can you tell me what you define as queer? Uh, because I've heard several definitions. Hmm. I guess someone who does not identify as straight. Whatever that may be. Thank you. Simple. Yeah. Hallelujah. Thank you so yeah. much. Either gender-wise or um, sexuality-wise. Amazing. Well. Yeah. Thank you. Because I've had very long explanations before that get very complicated. And they go, well, it's not this, but it is that. If you don't feel straight, you are queer. Nice. Thank you. I'm sure that's helped <laughs> listeners as well. Thank you so much. Or at least that's my definition. <laughs> Well, you've won the uh, uh, Bisexual Book Award, so you speak with great authority. I guess. <laughs> uh, so d- tell me a little bit about that award. Uh, yeah, I think it's based in New York, uh, run by Sheila Averbuch. I'm probably saying that wrong. I I'm, apologize, Sheila, if you ever listen to this. Um, but yeah, it's basically an award for um, books that have by protagonists mm-hmm. um, of any shape and form. Uh, so I won in 2013 and then I was a judge in 2014 for the adult category because mm-hmm. shadow play was under the young adult category. So I could not judge that <laughs> one uh, because my choice would have been clear. Uh, so that was fun. And um they asked me again to do it the following year, but I just didn't have time to read them all. But sure. uh, it was really interesting, and it's nice because it gives them a, a little visibility boost. I wrote a speech, and I couldn't be there for the New York award, but um, yeah, it was it was nice. It was the my first award. That's super and I impressive. Think my only award at the moment. Well, that's one more award than me. So Yay. congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. You've got a hundred percent awards more than myself although 100 percent of nothing is nothing actually isn't it so never mind Uh, it was it was a nice ego boost yeah i bet it was um so i'm now very conscious that i am talking to you a lot about gender yeah do you get sick of that i bet people ask you about that all the time not really i just um I guess one thing I worry about is because I'm I'm pretty sure I'm cisgender, like I've never questioned my own uh, gender. Mm-hmm. So I have to be careful that I'm not speaking over people who do. Sure. Uh, I do identify as bisexual, so I feel a bit more confident talking about that. But mm-hmm. no, I think even if someone is pretty straight or cisgender, I think it's still always good for everyone to investigate the gender roles in our yeah. society and the pressures we have, like toxic masculinity is a, a huge problem mm-hmm. um, in our society and why like male suicide is a really like, I think it's the biggest killer of men in their 20s and 30s. Uh, biggest killer of men in the UK under 40. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah I yeah, suffer from depression myself and I've been suicidal a couple of like really ill a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's an epidemic. Yeah, for sure. But and then they don't treat it like that. No, and then in this on the same side, like the pressure to be uber feminine and to look like this certain ideal. Like mm-hmm. I, I was affected by that, and I was severely anorexic in my teens as a result of that and other issues. Um, so yeah, I think like gender and sexuality has a big effect on all of us, mm-hmm. whether or not we are the default or marginalized in some way. Sure. So uh, yeah, I can I can talk about it to the cows come home. And also, before I wrote uh, the Micah Gray series, I didn't know that much about intersex um, rights. So I did a, a good six months of research before I even started, because mm-hmm. again, I'm not intersex, so it's a different um, 
you know, it's, it's something I didn't know anything about. Uh, and I became just incensed because it's, it's really quite common. It's about as common as people who have red hair. And if you think of all the redheads oh, right. you've met, yeah. but then have you met any out intersex people? Uh, no, nope. I'm due to interview one actually, oh, but... <laughs> well, that's but yeah, there aren't that many, um, who are open about it because it's so unknown. It's kind of this strange last taboo, even though I don't see why there's any need for it to be. And also like still every day an an infant is operated on to make their genitals appear more, more normal mm. because their clitoris is slightly too big or their penis is slightly too small. So, um, and that can result in them basically being castrated. Mm -hmm. So we, we say, Oh, genital mutilation surgery is so terrible over in Africa. Yet we're doing the same thing under the guise of normalizing babies. Yeah. Um, sometimes surgery is necessary but a lot of the time it's not. And then there's a lot of secrecy towards the actual kids themselves. They're not told the truth. They only find out maybe at puberty. Sure. Because uh, sometimes there's a bunch of different types of intersex, um, you know, uh, syndromes, I guess you would call them. Uh, so there's there's one where you are genetically XY androgen and sensitivity syndrome, but you don't uh, have a womb, obviously, but because you don't process androgen in the womb, you develop completely female. Right. So they, a lot of the times they don't find out until, you know, their, their period doesn't arrive. Or there's one where you look female as a child and then you go through male puberty, which I imagine is a bit of a shock. I must, yeah, perhaps. that must be so confusing, if yeah. not terrifying. Yeah. Because you've just had it hand, like hammered in, this is how you develop, this is how you... And then this is how boys work and this is how girls work. Yeah. And then, yeah. like, you're working like a boy works now. And that must terrify children. Yeah. Um. So I think... That's something we should also discuss more and be open to because you have, um, especially too, there's a big rise in TERFs recently who like um, trans exclusionary radical feminists um, who are like trans women are men, blah, 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 blah. And they're just being bigoted. But um, and their argument completely falls down when you bring in things like, well, what about intersex people who don't mm -hmm. fit the binary yeah. or all these other things? Um, so yeah, I'm ranting, but no. yeah, I think gender and sexuality is a really interesting facet of our society. And I hope eventually we can just all be a bit more open and fluid and stop putting ourselves in rigid boxes. I, I fully agree. And I applaud you for saying that. Thank you. Yeah. You deserve that swig of tea, <laughs> a celebratory yes. swig of tea. <laughs> um, no, I fully applaud you for, for that. I, I, if anything, it's just interesting. Yeah. It's a cool rabbit hole to go down. I'm, you know, I'm sat here in an Ozzy Osbourne t-shirt. I love heavy metal. Mm. To me, it's like heavy metal. Like you can go, oh, there's heavy metal and there's, um, you know, hair metal. But then you can go, oh, then you get deeper and there's speed metal and then there's power metal and there's neoclassical I've metal. I've not heard of most of those. But there we go. Uh, and, and then there's death metal and, and uh, melodic death metal, progressive mm. death metal. And there's all these different things. And Lemmy himself, RIP, uh, would would say ah, it's all just rock and roll, and I I agree. I kind of see gender like that. It's interesting to kind of go and explore these terminologies, yeah. but so it brings you delight in a way. And I, I find that with gender kind of stuff, it, it really interests me. I find it fun and and cool to mm -hmm. to know there's all these different facets of life out there. But at the end of the day, it's all just a thing, isn't it? It's all just rock and roll. It all comes under the umbrella of just whatever, man. Yeah, humanity. Yeah, it's, it's all good. Humanity, exactly. Yeah. It's all just humanity. Um, 
So when you were first setting out to publish uh, the, or, or write the first book, mm. were you like nail biting all the way through? Were you expecting, because you don't identify as intersex yourself, mm. you're not intersex, so were you, were you worried about a black backlash here? I was. Um, back then, the conversation was quite different. Like now people like there's We Need Diverse Books movement in YA. There's a lot of discussion of representation and um, in literature that there wasn't back then. I mean, not to the same extent there always has been. Uh, so I was a bit nervous, but um, I didn't really write it expecting it to be published, to mm -hmm. be honest. Um, actually, fun fact is that I wrote 80,000 words of Micah Gray as an adult 10 years older as right. a private investigator in Alada, <laughs> um, which is awful and will never see the light of day. It had a bat monster in it, which was cool. cool. I, might, I might recycle the bat monster, um, but it just wasn't working it turns out writing a mystery your first time around is very difficult. Yeah. And I could just recognize I didn't have the craft um, or the skill yet to do it. So I, I decided I would write a short story about Micah Gray joining the circus as a teenager. And then I got carried away. <laughs> but the short story, it just kept getting gradually longer. Sure. Um, initially, it was like 20,000 words. And then I kept adding more. And eventually, it became novel length. So I kind of wrote a novel backwards sort of or in a strange roundabout <laughs> way because I was I wasn't really sure what I was doing um and then there was this uh call for uh open doors from anger robot books and I was like oh I'll give it a try the book was like not quite finished which I didn't realize was a big no-no I was like two chapters from the end right um but I wrote a so don't don't do this this is <laughs> Don't do it. But I, I ended up writing my summary letter, which was also not very good, and the first five chapters, and I sent it off fully expecting for them to say nah. Um, but to my surprise, they requested the full manuscript three months later, and by then it was done pretty much. So good job, me. Thank God. Uh, so I sent it off, and again, I was like, oh, they're not going to want it. They're not going to want it. And they were like, we really like it, but it's got some issues. So uh -huh. they gave me a revise and resubmit. So they gave me basically editorial notes. And then I gutted it like it used to be chronological, and I added in the flashbacks. Um, I made it longer. I added more magic. Um, and that was when it really became like an actual book you could read rather than <laughs> gentle thought experiments about the circus, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so yeah, and I was nervous. Um, but there was some a little bit like, because every book has its reader, there were some people who had some issues with my representation. But for the most part, most people seem to be pretty happy. Mm. Um, I've even I even made uh, friends with an intersex reader who read the third book for me, which was really nice. Oh, so good. She, uh, they gave me some really good feedback mm -hmm. and things like that. So um, and also there were a couple things that I didn't get right the first time that I was able to fix when it got re-released. Nice. So that was nice too. Yeah, I bet. Um, so tell us a little bit about the world of the, uh, these three yes. books. So um, I'm really interested in genre blending as well, because I also think that genre are these artificial boxes and it's much more interesting when you smash everything together. So um, a lot of is, it feels very fantasy and it's marketed as fantasy, but it's actually science fiction and fantasy drag. So there is no <laughs> magic. There is only advanced technology that's been left behind by a previous civilization called the Alder. No one knows what's happened to them. Um, but so they've left behind things like laser guns and very science fictional things, but to the people in the world, it's magic. Uh -huh. They don't know how it works. And if it runs out of power, if the battery eventually goes dead, they have no way to fix it. They have no way to 
do anything about it. Sure. So it's a diminishing resource. It's probably an oil analog. Um, and so my main character, Jean, is raised as the noble daughter of a family that's very high regarded. And she has to be very feminine. And she's about to have her debut debutante ball. And they're trying to marry her off. And she really doesn't want any of this. Um, because she knows that she's different and she's afraid people are going to think she's a freak or a monster. Um, and she's very nervous about it. She's not sure what she identifies as. And she ends up overhearing how her parents are going to fix her to make her more marriageable. So she is basically like F that and runs away and joins the circus as a presenting as a male aerialist named Micah. So, um, reinvents him himself. I kind of tend to go to that, um, pronoun by then but i'm happy if people want to call micah they as mm -hmm. well um and then life in the circus is difficult there's hazing there's the hierarchy uh and there's also people coming after gene as well right okay so it's a bit of mystery magic that's not magic <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. There's probably a, probably a famous quote, isn't there, about, the Arthur C. Clark, about there's magic Ar yeah, and indistinguishable. C. Yeah. yeah, Arthur C. <laughs> Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. <laughs> um, is, that, is, is, is it set during a time period which is similar to maybe one of our time periods? Yeah, I based it on Victorian Scotland, uh, but randomly there's some Greek stuff mixed in there too, because that seems like a good idea when I was 19. Um, Shit, you wrote <laughs> it when you were 19? 19 and 20. Fuck, that's amazing. Yeah, Congratulations. Thank you. Came out when I was 23, I think. Um, Jesus. Yeah, so it was pretty... Not bad for my first attempt. Not bad. <laughs> oh my god! Everyone, give up now. No, you've not. No, you'll never make it. You. This is it. I don't this, know. This I don't should know be demoralizing. I don't know for if you. I've made it yet. Technically, that's the thing. The goalposts always shift. <laughs> um, like you know, I'm friends with some people who are like mega bestsellers and basically millionaires off their work, and I feel very much like the little kid at the big kids' table when I hang out with them. <laughs> no, you're a professional storyteller. You've made it as far as I'm oh, concerned. That is making it. Yeah. Done. Tick. <laughs> so this is a fantastic kind of world you've described. And you've explored it in three books. Mm -hmm. But not only that, but the vestigial tales. Yeah. Uh, did you come up with the world first? Or was this a story, the character first? I came up with Micah first. Um, it, it sounds flippant, but I couldn't decide what gender to make my main character. So mm -hmm. I thought, hmm, why not both? Nice. Which does sound flippant, but then I spent a good six months researching and thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I built up the world around him again as an adult. Um, so it meant that my first 80,000 word book that was not very good um, was basically how I developed the world um, mm. and the system of, of nobility and how everyone interacted. It's It used to be an empire, but the colonies um, seceded, but not through a super bloody war. And there was no slavery. Um, the colonialism was slightly gentler than our um, in our world uh, because I didn't want to touch on slavery or anything like that. Sure. So there's a bit of xenophobia, but not outright racism in the same way. Um, and there's still tension with the former colonies, um, especially because a lot of relies heavily on imports because it doesn't have many natural resources, but it had the most vestige, which is the magic slash tech. Left right. Over okay. From the elder. 
So there's a power imbalance that builds towards a potential civil war later in the series. And uh, when you say your first book of 80,000 words, are you referring to the adult make a adult one? I think it was called The Shadow and the Searcher, which is a terrible title. Is it? Uh, it doesn't really work for the book. Okay, fair enough. You know the book yeah. more than me. Because so. a shadow was a private investigator. Uh-huh. But I don't know why I said searcher. I think that was the name of a detective in the world. I don't remember. It's been mm, a while. Fair enough. Um, so you were genre blending right there even further, weren't you? Adding a bit yeah, of a mystery PI well. kind of yeah. stuff in there. And I think it was just too much. It didn't it didn't really work. But have you always been interested in genre blending? I think so. Um I don't think I I can I don't think I ever write something that's very, very clearly in one box. I think everything blends a little bit. Like my space opera is more the Star Wars um, approach where it's kind of more science fantasy-ish mm -hmm. uh, rather than hardcore tech. And um, the Pacifica books are uh, thrillers in the near future. And I'm writing, well, I'm taking a break now, but I was writing a book that's not speculative at all. That's uh, based on my family history over three generations. So mm -hmm. it kind of blended contemporary and historical. Okay. So tell me a little bit about uh, this space opera. Yep. So that's Seven Devils mm -hmm. and it'll come out in summer 2020 because publishing timelines are slow. <laughs> uh, but uh, I really love it. It's basically Mad Max Fury Road set in space. Cool. So it's um, five women smashing the patriarchy, pretty much. And uh, the two main girls, um, it's co-written with my friend uh, Elizabeth May. And she wrote Eris, who is basically if Princess Leia uh, was raised by Darth Vader along with Luke and then woke up and was like, this is horrible and leaves and joins the resistance. Mm -hmm. But uh, Luke turns very Kylo Ren and she basically has to take him down. Is this... Uh, is this deliberately inspired by star wars uh, or are you I don't just using it wasn't those deliberate as... but it i i don't think it's possible to write a, a space opera without being a bit influenced by star wars sure so but it's a useful shorthand or perhaps even a used sci-fi universe without yeah. being influenced by yeah, star wars yeah i think so um and yeah, it's, it's kind of Greco-Roman inspired um, in terms of its like opulence. Like, you know, the aesthetics of Jupiter ascending with the like evil space yeah. vampires. Mm -hmm. It's like that, but without like the random dragon in a dragon man in a leather coat and <laughs> space werewolf. I think he's a dog. Is he not in the leather coat? I could be wrong. No, he's definitely some sort of reptile oh, that okay. gets punched in the head by Channing Tatum. I don't I That movie was bonkers. I still loved it. Because it was just so, so weird. Space mm -hmm. bees. Why? I don't know. Why not? Why not? I heard yeah. a great, there's a great line. I don't know where I heard it originally years and years ago. It says, instead of asking why, it said, ask why not. Mm -hmm. I think it was flippantly, uh, actually, now I remember it. It was, it was flippantly used um, when talking about the Iraq war. <laughs> and it was sarcastically <laughs> saying, instead of asking why, ask why not. Uh, and that kind of humour appeals to me. <laughs> it sounds like feminism plays a big yeah. part in your writing then. Yeah. Smashing the patriarchy. Yeah, You've also bit. appeared in uh, the anthology Nasty Women. Yeah. I, or people probably already know where that title would have come from. Yep. Um, is that something you deliberately explore? Or is that something that just is just so part of you that it just comes out whether you want it to I or guess, not? I guess, yeah, like, because I have always thought women were equal to men. Mm. Therefore, I'm a feminist. The end. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, like the Pacifica books are very feminist um, because cyberpunk historically is kind of misogynistic in my mm-hmm. experience. And that annoyed me that the women are like these prizes to be won in like some video game scenario. Looking at you, Ready Player One. <laughs> um, so I think that came out in those books. And then Seven Devils was very much a response to Trump and just the Me Too movement near the end, like as we were revising, Me Too was all Mm -hmm. coming out and we were like, oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, I think, I don't think there's a way, because I think all writing is political. So your politics are going to bleed into everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if you're writing through various characters who are going to be very different to you, um, you still will have this underlying purpose of what you believe in and what what is important to you. Mm -hmm. So I particularly enjoy grim dark dystopian science fiction i'm a huge fan of the fictional world of warhammer 40,000, that most cool and trendy (laughs) of hobbies um and the imperium of man in that is extremely fascist extremely right-wing horrendously bureaucratical incredibly religious and zealous um and I find that, and I'm not, I'm the opposite of that. Yet I kind of get caught up in it and enjoy being those characters. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy also characters in superhero fiction, mm-hmm. like Batman, like the Punisher, who come down and they just beat people up furiously without judge or jury. Yeah. In the case of the Punisher, just kill them. Yeah. Um, and, and that excites me. Yeah, that's the opposite of me. Why? Why is that then? Because you talk about like your thoughts come out in your your writing and your ideas. But if I was to write something, I would probably write something similar to the Punisher. Well, for you, then it's escapism and it's the freedom to imagine not being confined by the rules of society. Um, I think, like, I'm reading a a book just now. that's theoretical. It's fantasy and mimesis by Catherine Hume. I think it was written in the nineties. And it's like a very theoretical look of like, why are we interested in fantasy? Why has fantasy been kind of like sidelined in society and Mm -hmm. and denigrated as just escapist literature and not worthy of like the canon in the same way other books by like dead white men have been. Um, And it was really interesting because it, it just looks at all the different types of fantasy and how there you have like, didactic fiction that kind of lectures at you moralistically versus uh, revisionist fantasy that gives you the tools to imagine a different world or uh, fantasies of vision, fantasy of illusion, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And it was really interesting to just see how she systematically categorized fantasy because yeah. we, we kind of tend to just lump everything together. Sure. Tell me about the Pacifica series. Mm-hmm. How, are you, how are you turning the very male-centric uh, cyberpunk movement into something more feminist? Uh, so that one, I again, I tend to come up with characters first. And so False Heart stars uh, conjoined twins mm-hmm. who were raised in a cult outside of San Francisco. And uh, they're joined at the chest and their shared heart starts to fail. Um, I'm using a little bit of artistic license because a lot of the time, if you are conjoined at the chest, um, your heart fails much sooner than 16. Uh, but it's the future, so we can we can look beyond that. And so they escape uh, the cult, and then they're thrown into this hyper futuristic society. The cult has like no tech; it's basically like 1970s hippy dippy camp with no sorts of tech. Um, and then they are separated. 
and uh, they have to navigate this new world apart for the first time. Like the first line is, this is the first time I've ever been alone. And it's when she wakes up from surgery. Because I was really interested in what would it be like to have never been alone and to never have privacy mm. and to literally be conjoined with with someone, um, literally your soulmate pretty much. Um, and then what would happen if that other literal half of you kept a secret like murder? How far would you go to find out the truth? Is that is that true in the book? In the book. That's a good book. In the yep, in the book, her sister comes to her flat in like the second chat after the prologue. She's covered in blood. And her sister's like, What the heck? Are you hurt? And she's like, It's not my blood. And Tama, the main the main twin, is like, Oh, oh wow, we're what do we do? We gotta sort this out. And then um Tyla, the other twin, is arrested, thrown in jail. And uh, Tama's brought in for questioning. And then she's given a choice. Your sisters, uh, you can go undercover as your sister into the San Francisco mob and mm -hmm. help us take down the Rattel because we think they're running these illegal drugs, uh, dream drugs, vision drugs. And if you can do that, we won't kill your sister, basically. That's metal. I like the sound. I love, yeah, I loved writing that book, too. It was probably the most fun I had writing a book. Um, because my first publisher went under when Micah Gray was only the first uh -huh. two books had come out. So I was um, really thrown for a loop in that. And I was really disappointed. I was like, what's what's happening with my career? What do I do? Uh, literally, the second book ends on a massive cliffhanger. Do I self-publish the third? I don't know. I had like this huge crisis of confidence. So I just decided to write something completely different. And I threw myself into false arts and I loved it. Um, and that's the book that really kind of ended up launching my career in a different way. Yeah. Um, and then Shattered Minds is a companion one, and it's basically female Dexter with a drug problem. Cool. So she is a serial killer who becomes deliberately addicted to those dream drugs that are mentioned in the first book so that she's only killing people in her imagination rather than in real life. But then her uh, former colleague is murdered and sends an AI code while she's plugged in and dumps a bunch of encrypted information in her head. Uh -huh. Johnny Mnemonic. I can never say that. Me neither. Style. Uh, and so she's forced to like return to the real world, partner with a group of hackers called The Trust and try and take down an evil corporation. But she still wants to kill everyone all the time. It sounds like you had, you were like just let yourself really nicely indulge in yeah. the conventions as well as yeah, like yeah. subverting. The, yeah, but the... I had fun with the tropes too, because there's a reason things are tropes because yeah. they're interesting to us and we like them. So yeah, I played a lot with um, cyberpunk tropes. You've got crazy dream sequences. There's like shootouts. And um, in this world, people can change their body pretty much at will. You can walk into a flesh parlor and you can change your face. Mm -hmm. uh, you can change your DNA so that your hair will grow out of your head pink, because I thought that would be awesome. Mm -hmm. There are hover cars. Like, yeah, I had fun with the aesthetics of like Blade Runner and that kind of thing. Just satisfying, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, very satisfying. You want your expectations yeah. fulfilled sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I love uh playing with the in that one i played a lot with the idea of utopia versus dystopia because there are a lot of things about pacifica that are objectively really good there's mm. free healthcare for everyone um there's a poverty has been eradicated there's not been any major wars on the whole planet for a while um there's basic income uh free education uh, you can download information directly to your brain if you want, like lots of really cool stuff, but it's also a surveillance state and you can't deviate too far from the normal or mm. you will be 
put down, basically. So there's some genre blending between utopia and dystopia there as well. Yeah, because I think, you know, you're never, I don't think if it's a spectrum, it's hard to have a perfect utopia because one person's utopia is someone else's nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and likewise with dystopia. Unless you lived in a personal holodeck. Yeah, I guess. Unless you lived in your own version of The Matrix, I suppose. Yeah. I didn't know it. Yeah. And yeah, I guess a, a utopia, you'd have to be, have your individual world, but that would be terrifying to know that. So you'd have to be, you couldn't even interact with other people like The Matrix because yeah. then you couldn't, you'd share ideas of dissent and that would be totalitarian. Yeah, that could be its despotism. own book right there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll have thirty uh, percent royalties. Thank you. Very much. <laughs> um, a question on YA as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it just that people have written a story and then it, they've gone? I know what will make this easy to sell. I'll say it's YA. No, I don't think so. I think there was a bit of that when YA was really booming, but mm-hmm. YA has kind of calmed down a bit lately. I teach a whole module on, on young adult fiction mm-hmm. uh, at Napier. And so it's, it's an age range. It's a market, not a genre. So that's why it's got all different types of genres. Right. Um, but it has to, like my definition of YA is it needs to have a teen protagonist who is dealing with something that in some way reflects the teen experience. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of firsts, a lot of questioning authority, a lot of overthrowing uh, regimes mm-hmm. in the d- dystopia, obviously, especially like Hunger Games. Um, and it can't be like an adult looking back on their childhood because right. that's colored by an adult um, framework. So, yeah, as long as it has a teenage protagonist and deals with things that would be of relevance to a teenager, um, then it's probably why. Let's throw my cynical theory right out mm-hmm. the window then. Thank you. Yeah, for there were some me. people who thought, oh, I'll make a quick buck and make and write YA. But I think a lot of the times you can tell mm-hmm. if you haven't read a lot of YA, if you don't really understand why teens are drawn to certain types of stories. Sure. Um, yeah. Like, I think you should only write YA if you really want to. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, teens, teens, teens can tell if you're not into it, I think, too. And what are you re- uh, writing at the moment? I am playing around with a couple different things. Um, I'm going to try branching out into self-publishing under a pseudonym in a bit. Uh, I was writing my book based on my family, but I'm taking a break from that because I need to do more research when I go back to California in December. So I'm going to start brainstorming a dragon book. Because I've loved, loved, loved dragons. Like Robin Hobb is my favorite author Mm -hmm. of all time. Um, her Realm of the Elderlings series is great. If you haven't read them, start with Assassin's Apprentice and thank me later. And I also really loved like Dragon Riders of Pern when I was a kid. They haven't aged super well, but I still really loved them. Uh, and I read Aragorn, which again also hasn't aged particularly well. But I just really like the idea of, you know, basically these huge dinosaurs that we've put in fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I want to try and do my own spin on them. What kind of dragons will you be including? Um, I'm going to give my dragons feathers because oh, right. dinosaurs okay. have feathers. So I think we can give dragons some feathers. Mm-hmm. And I think the Chinese dragons tend to have some feathers mm-hmm. on them. Um, but I'm still, I'm, it's still very early days. So I need to figure out what their whole society will be like and things like that. So Have you set yourself on European dragons, uh, East Asian dragons? Both? I think they'll be more European, but again, I'm going to do a lot of research into the mythology of dragons Mm -hmm. and see what I can 
what I can steal and whatnot. They'll mm-hmm. probably will be a little bit cat-like in their personality. So I think cats are basically little dragons. <laughs> or parrots, I guess they're also dragons. Parrots, That's really parrots cool. can be little assholes. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I, I find it really inspirational as well that you say, I want to write a book about dragons. I love dragons. And you're a serious, proper author. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, a lot of authors might be maybe a little bit scared to say, I want to write, like a lot of people I've spoken to, not on this podcast, uh, but at events and things, they want to explore the human spirit experience and what it means. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll do all that too, yeah. just with dragons. Well, like, yeah, but they won't go, they won't start with dragons, which I really like. Yeah. I find that very admirable. Um, so that's a very exciting thing you've got coming up. Um, it's well, been. It'll a... be a while. <laughs> I'm still percolating it. I haven't even started writing down my brainstorming yet. Well, then really. you get to, that's just more time to think about dragons. Yeah, pretty much. And who much. doesn't want to think about dragons? Yeah. Uh, will they breathe different things? I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet. Because I... I do like fire breathing dragons, mm-hmm. but maybe they should breathe something else. Well, I like it when dra- you have different types of dragon. Yeah. And some of them drink, drink. Some of them, <laughs> some of them breathe ice. Yeah. Some of them breathe uh, acid. acid. That's a very good one. I like that a lot. Yeah. Some of them just belch toxic fumes and embers and things. You know, basically uh, the Elder Scrolls mythology <laughs> yeah, of dragons yeah. when they came back. Um, so I'm, I'm aware that I've kept you for a while now. <laughs> I apologize. No it's worries. Just been an absolutely it's been fun. Fascinating talk. Um, where can we find out about your work and purchase your work? Uh, I should be available at all good bookstores. If you want a signed copy, you can buy from Transreal Books, which is in the grass market in Edinburgh. And I'll happily personalize and scribble and he'll send them out for you. Um, you can do that online or in person. Uh, I uh, have a website, which is lauralam.co.uk, where you can find out more about the books. I'm on Twitter at LR underscore Lamb. Same for Instagram. I'm vaguely am on Tumblr, but not that much. But yeah, I'm on Amazon, Waterstones, Barnes and Noble, wherever. Everywhere. Yeah. That's please, good. Please buy them. I need to eat. <laughs> well, from what you've said, it sounds like a few people definitely will be picking them up. <laughs> they sound awesome. Ancient laser guns just hooked me in Yay. right there. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. And if you want to read Laura's books, the best place to head is over to her website, lauralam.co.uk. And that's lamb without a bee at the end, unlike the animal, which has a bee at the end. Although she is an animal, an animal, of course, being a living organism that feeds on organic matter, typically having specialized sense organs, a nervous system, and able to respond rapidly to stimuli. Laura can be categorized as a human, and humans fulfill the criteria of being an animal and thus are animals, albeit of all the animals, humans are the worst ones. That is, of course, until mosquitoes breed with leeches and build palm oil fueled fracking cities in the Arctic, purely to power invasive transmissions that override TV, phone and computer screens to only show unfiltered Google image results for necrotizing fasciitis face extreme. Story time?
Something Fishy by David L. Clements Read by Debbie Cannon It was a fish. Unquestionably, a large fish, coloured mostly a deep, dark blue, but with large pink spots scattered across its dorsal side. The colours appeared especially vibrant in the light of this planet's bluer, hotter sun. The fish was standing on its tail, or at least that's how it seemed, since the tail disappeared into the leaf mould on the forest floor, and it was singing. The song sounded operatic, but Peter wasn't sure. He didn't like opera. He found it too artificial, too pretentious. It was one of the few things he and his now distant partner Michelle couldn't agree on. But at this point in his mission, he'd been away so long, he'd even started to miss those disagreements. A singing fish wasn't what you expected to find on a planetary survey. The unexpected yes. He remembered stories about the semi-sentient plant life on one planet, and the time taken to work out that the small, scurrying creatures, with no detectable ways of eating or excreting, were actually self-motile seed pods not animals after all. Or the planet-wide symbiotic ecosphere where prey animals volunteered themselves to be eaten by predators. But a giant fish, as tall as a human, in a forest of purple serpentine trees, ten miles from the nearest large body of water, standing on its tail and singing opera? No, this wasn't right. He checked that the remotes surveying that area of the forest were functioning. These little robots resembled the local equivalent of birds. Two were perched on the twisting leaves of a tree, observing the fish's operatic display. The remote's performance metrics were optimal, the video and audio feeds fully encrypted and suffering no dropouts. He even checked his own implants, making sure they weren't glitching or suffering a malware attack though the chances of that happening this far beyond the rim of inhabited space were minimal. As far as Peter could tell, he was the only human for several light years in every direction, and, since Michel had checked them out before he had left home, he couldn't have brought anything with him. Everything looked fine. Short of rebooting the entire system, they were the best checks he could do. And yet the fish still stood there, singing. Peter was slower to action, more careful about examining all the options. But for something as unusual as this, he missed Michelle's quick-witted insight. He looked wistfully at the image of her that was displayed in the corner of his desktop. He wasn't far from the singing fish. The flitter could be there within minutes if he pushed it supersonic, but that would break protocol. He wasn't far from the singing fish. The flitter could be there within minutes if he pushed it supersonic, but doing that would break protocol. He should head out immediately, in case the Piskeen operatic performance ended soon. Protocol, in principle, required him to obtain permission before mounting any direct interaction with the planetary environment. Contamination, of planet or surveyor, carried danger, 
This had been drilled into Peter during training. The years of survey work since then had shown him that many breakthroughs had come from breaking protocol. The secret of the self-motel seed pods had only been revealed when a frustrated surveyor trod on one by accident. He had met Michelle during training for the Survey Corps. She was French, one of the European Union's recruits, while he was from the US. All of them had been eager to explore the frontier, but she and Peter had bonded because they were also fascinated by alien biology. The Survey Corps' main job was locating targets for colonisation, but it was just as important to catalogue the infinite variety of life in the galaxy. And that's what really motivated Peter and Michelle. Finding those planets that should be avoided, those that should be protected, and identifying the few biospheres that could peacefully coexist with earthly biology. That was why Peter was out here, on his own because of cuts. He had protested against them the last time he had been home, but to no avail. The cuts, combined with undiminished ambition, meant the Survey Corps was spread thin across the myriad planets beyond the frontier. A message to headquarters about the fish, and a request to make direct intervention, would take days to traverse the galaxy's wormhole network, and longer to make its way through review panels and risk assessment groups. Peter could make his own decisions in emergencies, or in exceptional circumstances. He'd got to know the biology of this world pretty well. He was currently in the tropics. Not that they lived up to that name. He had spent three months in the frigid Arctic wastes, which got far colder than the Antarctic, but still managed to support some life. The tropics were teeming in comparison. He'd found that the basic building blocks of life on this planet were similar to a thousand others. Long-chain molecules, not DNA but similar, stored genetics, while amino acids in various configurations were the building blocks of protein analogues. The planet was comfortable enough for colonisation, especially, thought Peter, in the tropics, and compatible enough biologically that it would work. You couldn't get much food value from local species, except as indigestible roughage, but nothing was actively poisonous to earthly biology. Human food crops could be grown, and much more besides. On that basis, the planet might be slated for a more detailed and a more intrusive examination. If there were intelligent life here, or something unusual that Peter had yet to spot, then things could be very different. Unusual biology could earn the planet protected status, and if he found any signs of intelligence, he'd have to pull out immediately and wait for the first contact team. The singing fish was definitely odd, and might even be a sign of intelligence, and that would certainly make these circumstances exceptional. If Michelle were in his place, she would head out immediately. She kept telling him he was too cautious. He reviewed the incoming data, sinking into the virtual reality his implants built from the remote signals. The fish was still there. It was singing what he thought was an aria. He had to see it, and hear it, for himself. Decision made, he rapidly stuffed himself into one of the suits needed for protection from the local biosphere, 
The suit would also protect the local ecology from the earthly biosphere Peter carried around and inside himself. Then he walked the short distance from the main monitoring centre of his small habitat to the hangar and the tiny atmospheric flitter that it contained. The flight took less time than it took to get ready. The autopilot landed the flitter in a clearing conveniently close to the singing fish. A few moments later, he looked out onto an alien environment. At first sight, the forest wasn't unlike those at home. Tall tree analogues, ground-covering plants, and decaying leaves spread all around. After a few moments, the differences began to become apparent. The colours were wrong. The sun in the sky was too blue. The leaves on the trees were a bluey shade of green, their chlorophyll analogue better adapted to working with light from their star. The shape of the leaves was different too, not matching any of the basic leaf forms you would find on Earth or the colonised planets, with leaf substems spiralling upwards towards the light. All of this, and much more, was the result of a separate evolution that derived nothing from the basic assumptions of earthly biology that were hardwired in every species on Earth for the last three and a half billion years. Peter paused as he made his way out of the airlock, glancing at the array of self-defence equipment stored there. The biology of this planet was not without its hazards. There were apex predators in all the environments he had studied. The largest he was aware of were the arsenoids that roamed these equatorial forests. His remotes had found no trace of arsenoid activity anywhere near the singing fish, so he was probably safe from them but it was the potential unknown aspects of this biosphere that gave him pause for thought. Predators didn't always work in obvious ways. He remembered a planet where the females of the dominant herbivore species were lured to their deaths by a predator that almost perfectly mimicked the mating displays of the males. The unfortunate females would be seduced into a cave they thought had been prepared as a nesting site by the male, only to be devoured by the much larger sedentary predator that lurked there. It might be that the singing fish was the mating display of an unknown large animal, or the lure of an even larger predator. Caution was called for, but he couldn't blithely mow down members of a potentially unique species using some of the more destructive devices that lay before him. After a few moments' thought, he selected one of the non-lethal weapons, a combined net and adhesive spray gun that was capable of immobilising any creature smaller than a mammoth. Then, after a few moments' further thought, he also selected a diamond-edged machete. He wasn't planning to use this as a weapon, though. It would be an excellent escape device if he stuck himself in his own netting, since gluing yourself to a tree on an alien planet light years from the nearest assistance could be fatal as well as embarrassing. With the weapons strapped to his belt, Peter stepped out of the airlock. He took a few moments to get his bearings, then headed to where he hoped the fish was still singing. He heard it before he saw it. The fish's voice ranged from a deep, profound bass to the clear, crystal tones of the best soprano. 
He paused to listen before he stepped into the clearing to see the fish for himself. There were hints of polyphony to the singing, and, despite his usual attitude to opera, he was beginning to find its tones fascinating, almost enjoyable. He didn't rush in. The fish continued to sing with no sign that it was going to stop any time soon. He circled the clearing, using the scanners in his suit linked to those in the remotes that watched from above. Terahertz radar in the remotes probed the ground around the fish, looking for any evidence that it was part of some larger, nastier predator. Seismometers embedded in the boots of his suit used his footsteps to probe the ground in search of burrowing or pre-existing tunnels, while vents in his helmet sifted the atmosphere for any chemicals that might act as pheromones or poisons for local species. They all found nothing. Peter reviewed the results on the head-up display in his helmet and came to a conclusion. It was safe. He moved into the clearing, seeing the fish clearly with his own eyes for the first time. Its voice rose to a crescendo, the song reaching a dramatic climax just as he arrived, a conclusion worthy, as far as Peter could tell, of the best operas and best opera singers in the world. The song stopped. The fish turned towards Peter, bowed, and disappeared. He smiled, feeling a fool. He should have guessed it at once. The signals from the remotes were secure, but Michel had checked his implant six months ago, the day he had left for this survey, and must have installed code that would put on this show for him. She loved opera almost as much as she loved him. Maybe more. But most of all, she loved a good joke. A window appeared in his field of view, showing her smiling face. I hope you don't mind too much. I had so much fun planning this, and I think you might have enjoyed the music. And now it's only three more months until we are together again. His smile broadened. Why a fish? he asked, as the recorded message paused, almost as if Michel had expected him to ask a question. I really couldn't resist the idea when I worked out where you would be today. Happy Poisson d'Avril, mon cher. That was Something Fishy, narrated by Debbie Cannon and written by David L. Clements, who we've actually got lined up as a Sonic Space guest later in this series. To play us out, we're going to listen to L Space, Strung between Edinburgh, Glasgow and the Athena Stella Archipelago, L-Space create unique dream pop soundscapes using dreamy guitars and retro-futuristic synths, interwoven with grooving bass, catchy beats and Lily's ethereal vocals. Following the critical success of their debut album Kipple Arcadia, I have no idea what that means, please, at RJ Bailey, L-Space return with an ambitious new project, music, for megastructures. Music for megastructures is a score to a city that does not yet exist. Indeed, I don't think there are scores for cities which actually do exist. So it's remarkable on two fronts. 
The city it's a soundtrack to is of unimaginable scale, strange technologies and diverse characters. The music is cinematic in scope and scale, combining influence from the likes of Henrik Gorecki and Philip Glass, with Elspace's unique brand of utopian electropop. It's a used universe, beautiful in its imperfection. The album is split into four chapters. Travel brings the listener into the city, descending from above on an as-yet-undiscovered technology with deep, crushing synths and squalling sirens. Work explores the dramatic alienation of a fully automated workforce. Bored robots sing to themselves, while workers do what they can to stay relevant. Health employs utopian strings and optimistic tones to examine the effects of longer lifespans and transhumanism. The album closes with life, a glimpse into the nightlife of the city, virtual reality gambling, automaton jazz, and neon billboards advertising unobtainable products. Music for Megastructures is a statement of intent from Elspace. They're here to soundtrack the future, to make the present a bit more beautiful. It's currently on wide release on all major digital platforms. Of course, I don't know why I said wide release. The fact they're digital platforms implies that they're wide, as in accessible from the internet, which is as wide as it gets. The track I've picked to play out with is Morning Traffic Overhead, which isn't too science fiction if you live near a bypass. I've been RJ Bailey, and I will see you in the next episode of Shoreline of Infinity's Soundwave, released generally the 1st and 15th of every month. However, hands up, yeah, work got in the way. But like I said, if you go to the Patreon, if you like what we're doing, then please consider subscribing to one of the Soundwave levels. That money will go towards me being able to produce this way more regularly for you and of a higher quality. So I can say to unexpected offers from animation studios, sorry guys, the travellers of the Stellican Later Guild gotta get their Soundwave. If you want to chat with me on Twitter, you can do at RJ Bailey, at R-J-B-A-Y-L-E-Y. It's not the normal spelling. I have to spell it out in an audio format. It's the bane of my entire existence. And if you want to advertise on Soundwave, it's RJ Bailey at shorelineofinfinity.com. Until next time, I will see you in the Soundwave.
Soundwave was written, presented, and produced by director Overtect Verbistect Loquinist Voxtect R.J. Bailey and co-produced by Overtect Noel Chidwick. Music by Tunetect Alex Storer. Stories curated by Verbis Curate Voxtects Debbie Cannon and Jonathan Whiteside. An Infinite Number of Me, written by Dan Grace, narrated by Voxtect Danielle Farrow. L5, written by Peter Roberts, narrated by Voxtect Ben Blow. Something Fishy, written by David L. Clements, narrated by Debbie Cannon. All Stories and Poetry, produced by R.J. Bailey. Sonic Space was produced and presented by R.J. Bailey. Laura Lamb's books can be found via her website, lauralamb.co.uk. Morning Traffic Overhead by L-Space is from the album Music for Megastructures on Last Night from Glasgow. Their website is l-space.co.uk. Artwork by Iliotect Mark Toner. You can find Shoreline of Infinity's website at shorelineofinfinity.com. 66.6% of the psychic energy generated by this podcast will be donated to the survivors of the 236th Greygast Cyclin Intersector War Fund.